Hello, and welcome to our series on Sefer Shemot. I'm Yael Ziegler, and I'm going to be doing today Perak Aleph of Sefer Shemot. Perak Aleph divides pretty easily into two parts. The first part are the first seven psukim, which function as a introduction to not just to the chapter, but to this period of time in which we find ourselves, in which Am Yisrael is, has arrived in Egypt and has proliferated greatly. Uh, that's the backdrop for the actual beginning of the story, which starts in Pasukhet, with the beginning of the enslavement, with the beginning of the sense that the Egyptians are feeling threatened by this numerous people who live in Egypt. Um, the second half of the chapter, which is really the beginning of the story, as I said, starts in Pasukhet and goes on to Pasukhet. It's the story of the beginning of the enslavement and the terrible decrees that Paro decrees against B'nai Israel. Let's begin with the first part of this chapter, which opens, Ve'ele shemot b'nei Yisrael haba'im Yitzrayma et Yaakov ish uveto ba'u. These are the names of the children of Yisrael who have come down to Egypt with Yaakov. Each man came with his household. And what's interesting about this introduction is that, of course, right after this, it, introduce, it introduces the actual names of the sons of Israel. But what we have to first note about this introduction is that, in fact, it is basically a repetition from Bereshit Perkmem Vav, from Pasuk Chet, which also starts, Ve'ele Shmot B'nei Yisrael Haba'im Mitzrayma Yaakov Uvanav, and then goes on to list, perhaps in a bit greater detail, the names of the people who went down to Egypt. But one of the questions I think that we open with is this question of why we basically repeat an entire section that we already had in Sefer Shemot. This perhaps links up to another important uh, observation, and that is that the story begins with the Vav HaChibor, the Ve'ele Shemot, which is basically beginning with an and, and these are the names of the sons of Israel, which already indicates, as many of the Mepharshim, as many of the interpreters point out, that this connects Sefer Shemot to Sefer Bereshit. It connects our story to the previous book. And of course, I think it's somewhat commonplace to say, but it's important to note that Sefer Shemot picks up on the story of the family of Abraham turning this family into a nation. Um, our introduction to the book certainly is interested in doing that. And that, that, I think, is indicated by something that uh, we see in this introductory section to the book from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Zion, and that is that the introductory section has a, a, what we call an inclusio, which is a word or a phrase that opens the section and closes the section, so that the section opens with the phrase B'nai Yisrael, the Elish Shemot B'nai Yisrael, and in Pasuk Zion, we open that Pasuk also with the phrase, Uvnei Yisrael paru veishritzu veyirbu veyatzmu, and Am Yisrael became many and they multiplied, etc. But here, the phrase B'nei Yisrael in its second usage actually refers to the nation, whereas the phrase B'nei Yisrael in the first Pasuk actually refers to the individual Yisrael, namely Yaakov, who is also called Yisrael, these are the sons of the man named Israel, which indicates in what way this book is connected to the previous book. If the previous book is a book of a family, a book of individuals, Sefer Shemot begins as 
um, uh, a book that recalls a family, but is meant to transform this family into a nation so that the second time that the phrase B'nai Israel appears, it actually is referring to the nation of Israel and not the sons of this one individual. And so I started to say that it's sort of commonplace to say that Sefer Bereshit is the story of a family, Sefer Shemot is the story of a nation. And that's pretty much what we're seeing in this introductory section. We go on after we're told these are the names of the sons of Israel coming to Mitzrayim, who have come to Mitzrayim. We now have the names of those sons, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Viuda, Yisachar, Zivulun, Uvinyamin, Dan, Vinaftali, Gad, Asher. And here, of course, we have the listing of the sons. Um, what's interesting, of course, about all of the various list listings of the sons, really pretty much throughout the Tanakh, is that the order in which we list the sons is different in each place. All of the Mefarshim, many, many of the of the interpreters, I shouldn't say all, but many of the interpreters, and certainly many Midrashim, relate to this phenomenon. The question, of course, being why do we have different orders of uh, of the family in different places, and what does each order mean? Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna delve too deeply into the subject, but I do want to mention two points. One is that the Midrash notes that the reason that the orders appear differently in many different listings is to tell us that all of the tribes are equal. Lo hayu gedolim elu me'elu, right? You can list them in various orders because they're all equal and there's none that is uh, greater than the other. And the point that is made is by listing them in different orders, we get a sense that the order is meaningless. Um, the other point is that which the Shadal, Shmuel David Lutzato makes, and that is that he says that this is the most natural order, because what we have here is the order according to which uh, Yaakov married his wives. So, of course, his first wife is Leah, so then we have her children named, and his second wife is Rachel, and then we have her children named, and his third wife is Bilha, who is Rachel's servant, maidservant, and then we have her children named, and then after that we have the children of Zilpah. Um, the Shadal claims that this is the basic order, it's the most natural order, and I'm just going to leave it at that for the moment. The sukhe begins, Vayhi kol nefesh yotzei yerech Yaakov, shiv'im nefesh, v'yosef haya b'mitzrayim. And it was all of the souls who had emerged from the loins of Yaakov were 70 people, and Yosef was in Egypt. Now this is a very well-known tradition that there were 70 people or 70 members of B'nai Israel, of the children of Israel, uh, of the family of Israel, who came to Egypt. We see this also at, in that section that we mentioned previously in Bereshit, Perak Nanbav, but we see it also in Devarim, Perak Yud. We see this tradition of 70 members of the family that go down to Mitzrayim. Um, of course, we know that there's a certain amount of discussion as to how we arrive at 70. I'm not going to engage in that discussion right now. Uh, the more interesting point that I think that I would want to say about this pasuk is this description of Yosef in Egypt is a very passive description. It sort of hints at the fact that Yosef was in Egypt, but perhaps not of his own volition. Uh, moving on to the next two psukim, which constitute the, the end of this introductory section, we're told by Yamuk Yosef Hador Hahu, Yosef, his brothers, and that entire generation die out. And what transpires with this nation? Israel multiplied and they swarmed and they became many and they became very, very strong. 
and the land was filled with them. This is an extraordinary description of the fertility of Am Yisrael. Uh, the many different verbs that are used to describe here the fertility indicates how significant this fertility was. They become really very, very uh, numerous. And one of the reasons, of course, that we're so focused on Am Yisrael being numerous is because, of course, this is what is going to generate the sense um, among the Egyptians, and particularly with regard to Paro, of being threatened by the fertility of the Jewish people. But I want to mention a few other points that I think are, are worthy of note here. First of all, we have to note that this is pretty much the first time in Am Yisrael's history uh, or I should say in the history of the family of the nation, that they are really being described as being extraordinarily fertile. Um, in general, in the land of Israel, we see that there's a tremendous amount of fertility problems. There is a problem in Sefer Bereshit throughout of uh, both a problem of fertility of humans and fertility of land. These are two flip sides of the same coin. And of course, it also emerges as in its uh, attempt to correct this problem in the bracha that God gives Abraham, where he tells him he's going to be uh, a plentiful people, and he's going to have Zerah, and he's also going to give him a land, right? So Zerah and Aret, land and people, are the two flip sides of what we call Birchat Avraham. And these, of course, uh, these, these problems are not resolved in Sefer Bereshit, where we continuously see that the land is visited by famine and that the women of Avram's family have a problem of fertility. The only exception to this rule is, again, I think when Yaakov leaves the land and goes north, goes to Mesopotamia, and there he is able to have uh, many children, of course, that story is also fraught with fertility problems as well. But what we see here at the very opening of Sefer Shemot is that their arrival in Egypt, which is, of course, a place with a river, a place which has fertile land, is also a place of easy fertility. The problem of fertility seems to be limited to the land of Israel and requires a relationship with God, namely tefillah, Birchat Avraham in order to solve this problem. So that's one point that I wanted to make. There's more to say about that point, but perhaps we'll uh, we'll encounter it later on in the story. The other uh, two points that I want to make about this really, I think, very significant pasuk is that uh, first of all, the words here paru vayirbu, right? Pru or vu bimod meod in a great manner. This recalls earlier blessings of God, both to Adam HaRishon, to the first man, and to Noah, and then eventually that bracha filters down to Abraham as well. This blessing of fertility is now beginning to be fulfilled, which also means, I think, that the initial um, uh, reason that God created the world, God's design for the world, is beginning to be fulfilled now at the opening of Sefer Bereshit. This point leads me to my Last point that I want to make about this pasuk, and that is that this pasuk, of course, suggests that what we have there is some, what we have here in this story is some sort of recreation. And we are going to see this as we progress through this beginning part of Sefer Shemot, where what we, what we are going to see is that the makot, the plagues, have some sort of uncreation for the purpose of recreation, so that the, the world does not fulfill God's designs for it. And therefore, what we're going to see that Sefer Shemot is about, among other things, is God destroying this great world that he has created in the form of this great civilization that has emerged in this, in this world that is the civilization of Egypt. It's going to be uncreated for the purpose of creating a new path for the world, one that is led by Am Yisrael 
in their move to Eretz Canaan, and one that can properly fulfill the purpose for which God created the world. Okay, after this pasuk, we now move into the, the real beginning of the story, uh, this, this, this section of Aleph through Zion of the first seven verses of the parak really are sort of timeless. They span a very um, broad period of time, and they don't really, you know, pin down the story in any one moment. We now are going to actually have an actual story where we actually um, specify what people are saying, what people are doing, and the story begins in Pasuk Chet. Asher loyada et Yosef, a new king arises in Egypt, one who did not know Yosef. Okay, so first of all, I think it's important to note that the story opens with a king. This king is the central figure in the Egyptian story. He's also, of course, as we know from archaeological discoveries, he is also the central figure in Egypt. Um, so it doesn't really surprise us that the story opens with a king. What's interesting about this king is that he arises, he is a new king. It's not clear why the story is interested in telling us about this new king. There is a famous machloket in Chazal, in the rabbinic commentators that Rashi brings up as to whether or not it's really a new king or just an old king whose decrees are new. Well, one of the reasons for that is because the Pasuk actually doesn't, doesn't state that the old king died. There's just a sense that there, something new is happening in Egypt. And whatever this new thing is, it's not good for the Jews. <laughs> That's a bit of an anachronism, right? It's not good for the Israelites. It's not good for B'nai Israel because this king uh, purports not to know Yosef. So the story opens with betrayal, right? Because, of course, Yosef was the one who had saved Egypt from famine. Um, and the fact that this new king chooses not to know, right, not to have any sort of intimate uh, connection to Yosef bodes no well for the children of Israel. But at the same time, I think it also tells us something about Egypt, right? The story begins with an absence of gratitude. It begins with uh, biting the hand that once fed it. And of course, I think that this is meant to be, as the Midrash points out, a precursor to the real story, which is that Egypt no longer knows God, right? That's what, what Parah is going to say at the beginning of the fifth parak. Lo yadati et Hashem. I don't know God. And the Midrash actually connects that pasuk to this pasuk, telling us the same kind of society that didn't know Yosef, that doesn't recall its previous uh, provider of food, is also going to forget God. And so that's the beginning of the story. That's the opening of the story. Of course, one should also uh, bring up the archaeological sort of um, uh, connection or the historical connection as to whether or not this Melech Hadash al-Mitraim, this new king on Egypt, actually suggests a new dynasty in Egypt. Suggestion is made by Josephus and um, actually works out very nicely with this these new decrees. I mean, in general, Egypt was a very conservative society. One king did not did not change the decrees of the previous king. One interesting point to recall, and of course, we don't know which king this is, and we actually cannot date the story of Egypt to any particular time in Egyptian history. It's a very problematic question. Perhaps we will allude to it in the course of the Shirim. But what is an interesting point to note about Egyptian history is that for approximately 100 years, approximately from 1650 to 1550 BCE, there was a foreign dynasty, actually a Semitic foreign dynasty, 
ruling over Egypt. They were the Hyksos. This was a very, very um, troubling period for the Egyptians that a foreigner was ruling them. And in fact, in around 1550, the uh, first king of the 18th dynasty called Achmosis I, he defeated the Hyksos. And if in fact this is the beginning of that particular new dynasty, one can well understand why this king might be threatened by a proliferation of a Semitic people in Egypt under his rule. And it might also explain why he chose to ignore Yosef and all of the uh, good things that Yosef did for the Egyptian people, because he may have associated Yosef with the Hyksos and their very hated rule over Egypt. It's just a suggestion. It certainly is not any sort of conclusion. I'm not going to conclude as to who the king is. I do think it's significant that the Psukim themselves do not name this paro. Later on in the Tanakh, many different sections of Tanakh do in fact, or many, many different uh, uh, psukim in Tanakh, do in fact name the paro. We, we do sometimes get names of paro. We have paro Necho, or we have paro Tirhaka, uh, or we have all sorts of names, paro Shishak. And here we never actually find out the name of the paro, which I think is significant in rendering this paro, who all the paros were very, very proud of their names, and they inscribed their names everywhere on statues and on all sorts of monuments to their own glory. Well, the Tanakh erases this king, which leaves us a little bit in a dilemma or in a quandary in terms of understanding exactly when the story takes place. I'm going to leave that to the side for a moment. Let's now look at Paro's actual plan. So in Pasuk Tet, Paro says as follows, the Yomer El Amo, and he says to his nation, Behold, this nation, the children of Israel, note that Paro is the first one to call Am Yisrael a nation. In fact, his persecution of them ultimately is going to turn them into a nation. What does he say about them? mimenu. They are they are great and they are stronger than us. This seems to be a well-founded argument, especially given that we saw in Pasuk Zayin that Bnei Yisrael vayirbu vayatzmu. In fact, he uses the same language that the Tanakh itself uses to describe Am Yisrael's proliferation. And yet, of course, many of the different biblical interpreters ask the question, were they really greater in number than the Egyptians? The Abarbanel suggests that in fact the word mimenu only really is falling on the only really is modifying the word atsum. They are rav, they are great, they are numerous, and they are becoming stronger than us. In any case, whether or not Paro's fears are well-founded or not, he shares them with his people and he tries to rile them up. And in fact, in Pasukyuri, he um, uh, proposes that they should, in fact, do something about this threat that Am Yisrael, that the nation of Israel, poses. And he says as follows in Pasuk Yud, Hava nitchakmalo, let us do wisely with them. Of course, the word nitchakma, which comes from the word chacham, is somewhat ironic, given that in two psukim ago, we mentioned Yosef. Yosef was the navon v'chacham, that used his wisdom to help Egypt. And there's a certain irony here in Paro using the word chokhmah, using the word wisdom in order to undermine Yosef's brethren. Let us deal wisely with them. Pen year be, lest they will multiply. 
והיה, and it will be, כי תקראנה מלחמה, if there will be a war, ונוסף גם הוא על שונאינו, and he will, uh, he will join up with our enemies, ונלחם בנו, and they will, and fight against us, ועלה מן הארץ. This last phrase is a difficult phrase to understand. What is it in fact that Paro is afraid of? Is he afraid that they will leave the land, and they will arise from the land? And if so, why is he afraid of this? Different explanations have been proposed. The Abarbanel suggests that in fact they were already planning to enslave the people and therefore the threat that the Israelites would leave the land is the threat of losing free slave labor. The Rashbam along similar lines lines uh, offers the the possibility that they were already enslaved rashi sees this as a euphemism meaning and we will be forced to leave the land whereas of course paro doesn't really want to say that and so instead he says in a sort of what we call lashon naki in hidden language or in clean language the alamina arts someone will be forced from the land by the way this pasuk and this fear of paro that amistad will join their enemies and force them out of the land fits in very nicely with the uh, possibility that this is a dynasty following the period of the Hyksos, the Semitic people that ruled Egypt, because, of course, what they're afraid of is that all the Semitic peoples will join together, regain their strength, and again successfully oust the Egyptians from, uh, from, from ruling their own land. Okay, so what is it? What is the plan that Paro has in mind? And he places upon them taskmasters, right? Of course, misim here, the officers of the taxes are not actually monetary taxes, but what we call a labor tax. He places upon them taskmasters in order to oppress them with labors, in order to torment them with their labors. It's not exactly clear how this is meant to reduce their numbers. Perhaps he feels that because of exhaustion, they will not, um, they will not have any more children. Perhaps he simply wants to beat them into submission. It's not exactly clear how this is going to reduce their numbers. And of course, the plan doesn't work. We're going to see in a moment. But before that, we see what in fact it is that they build. And they build these storehouses or these cities of storages. For Paro, et pitom ve et Ramses. These are the names of the villages. Very nice traditional Egyptian names. The word Ramses, which is also the name of several very well-known Paros. We have Ramses the first. We have the famous Ramses the second. We're going to have Ramses the third. Ramses the fourth. There's been an argument, of course, that that means that this is the period of Ramses the second, who we know is a great builder. In any case, there's not conclusive evidence here. But the word Ramses means Ra, the sun god Ra birthed it or birthed him. And Pitom probably is a contraction uh, or a mispronunciation of the word Par Atum. Par means great. Atum is one of the great gods of Egypt. And so, as is traditional, this city of storage for Paro is named after the gods, Ra and Atum. These are things that are well known now from Egyptian archaeological discoveries. But what we have here is Am Yisrael building many buildings. Now, one of the things that I must just say here is that despite the fact that Josephus claimed that Am Yisrael built the pyramids, um, Am Yisrael did not build the pyramids. The pyramids 
far predated any possible period in which Am Yisrael now is enslaved in Egypt. But they are building uh, buildings for the Egyptians. And in Pasuk Yubet, we're told that Para's plan doesn't work. And as they tormented them or as they oppressed them, so they multiplied and so they spread out. The word vayakutsu implies fear and loathing, um, and they feared or and they loathed because of Bnei Israel. Bnei Israel became more and more numerous, and they caused dread and loathing among the Egyptians. So the plan doesn't work. Uh, Rashi actually points out that this is the beginning of God's victory against Paro. The words that appear in Pasuk Yudet, Ken Yirbeh, Vechen Yifrotz seem to clash with Paro's own words in Pasuk Yud, Pen Yirbeh. So this Pasuk here sort of uh, shows God's first triumph over Paro. Paro said, Pen Yirbeh, lest they will proliferate. And God says, Ken Yirbeh, and so they will proliferate. Well, in Pasuk Yud Gimel, we continue the story of slavery. And here we have a mass enslavement, and Egypt enslaved the children of Israel with hard labor. There's that maror, and they embittered their lives with hard labor. With mortar and with bricks, with all of the work of the field, at all of the all of this different labor, which they uh, which they work them in in hard labor. So the word I think that appears here over and over is the word avad, right? Which is you know certainly one of the key words of the book of Shemot in general. The word avad appears in different contexts in the book. Certainly at the beginning of the book, it appears a great deal uh, as a description of slavery. And as we progress through the book, we see that the word avad emerges as the ultimate goal of the book, which is the building of the Mishkan, namely service to God. So the book begins in service to a human godlike uh, king or, or king that, that self-deifies, but it concludes with service to God. And I think this is a very important point in the book, that the book is not coming in order to free Am Yisrael of all obligations, but rather God has freed Am Yisrael from Egypt in order to serve God. And so the word Evid is very important in the book. Well, in any case, what we see is, is that Paro's initial plan fails, and so now he's going to implement stage two of this plan. Stage two of the plan involves killing. Stage one of the plan, of course, is slavery. It's interesting to note that both of these both of these plans have two stages in their own right, in which the first part of the plan is implemented only among a very narrow sector, and then eventually Paro's decree becomes public, so that in the story of the, the enslavement, first he places upon them taskmasters, and only then, by Avidu Mitzrayim et B'nai Israel, all of Egypt becomes complicit in the enslavement of B'nai Israel, of the Israelites. The same thing happens in the killing part of the plan. Here it's perhaps even more insidious because the king of Egypt first only reveals this plot to kill all of the male babies to the, uh, to the midwives. And only in the very final pasuk of the parak does Paro um, really publicize and make public uh, this part of the plan. And he commands all of his people saying, 
throw the boy babies of the Israelites into the Nile River. Well, in any case, in the beginning of this plan, Melech Mitzrayim, Vayomer Melech Mitzrayim, Ivriot, and the king of Egypt says to these uh, midwives of the Israelites, Asher Shifra that the first one's name is Shifra and the second one's name is Vayomer, And he said, when you birth these Israelites, and you should look at the birth stool, if it is a boy, you shall kill him, and if it is a girl, she shall live. And these midwives feared God. And they did not do what the king of Egypt told them. And instead, they kept these children alive. And the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, why did you do this thing and you kept the children alive? Now, here I think uh, it's very important to note this act of defiance on the part of these midwives. It's an extraordinary act. The king of Egypt is certainly the most powerful person in the country. Arguably, he might be considered to be the most powerful person in the ancient Near East at the time. He was an extraordinary figure of power, and this defiance is absolutely extraordinary. Now, this really leads me to what I think is one of the great questions of this part of the story, and that is the question of the ethnic identity of these Mialdot. Okay, so these midwives are described in Pasuk Tedvav as the Mialdot Ha'ivriot, which is commonly translated as the Israelite midwives. This is what Rashi says, this is what the Rashbam translates, this is the Ibn Ezra, this is the Ramban, that they are Israelites themselves. However, other biblical interpreters, such as the Abarbanel, Shadal, Josephus, also goes in this direction, suggests that we should translate the words Mi'aldot Ha'ivriot, the midwives of the Israelites, leaving the open the possibility that, in fact, these midwives are Egyptians, which in, in some way actually makes sense, of course, because it's more likely that Paro would enlist his own people to directly kill the Israelites rather than relying on their fear of him in order to make them complicit in the killing of their own people. In any case, what I think is really magnificent about this part, this question, is that it's left deliberately ambiguous, right? We don't actually know whether or not they're Israelites or whether they're Egyptians. The names Shifra and Pu'ah themselves, I mean, certainly are um, Semitic names, um, but you know, not everybody even accepts that these are actually the names of the people. The Barbanel suggests that uh, these are not individuals, but rather the two midwives who attend uh, every birth. They're, they're actually called the Shifra and the Pu'ah, the Shifra being the one who is Mishaper, the child, who beautifies the child when the child comes out, you know, cleaning them up. And the Pu'ah is the one who is who soothes the child. Um, and so, in fact, we might not be talking about proper names of these midwives. In any case, what I think is really magnificent about this is that when we ask the question, what is it that motivate, motivates the midwives to act in this extraordinary fashion, the answer does not seem to be ethnic identification, but rather their role as midwives, those people who bring human life into the world, thereby imbuing them with a certain kind of 
uh, moral sense of the fact that it's wrong to take away life. And so I think that this point is made uh, very beautifully by the ambiguity that is embedded in the story. I will say one other thing, and that is that some people might suggest that in Pasuk Yudzayin, where it says that the Mialdot, the midwives, were um, were were Yarei Elokim. They were those who feared God. Well, we should just note that Yirat Elokim in Tanakh is often used about non-Jews, and it's often used within the context of morality. And so it doesn't necessarily suggest that these were God-fearing women in you know in 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 uh, in, in terms of their ethnicity, in terms of serving God. Rather, it might just allude to a certain moral sense that they have. Okay, let's move to the end of this paragraph because our time is really running out. Uh, Paro, of course, is extremely outraged, and he, you know, he says to them, "Why did you do this?" And the answer of the midwives in Pasuk Yutet, "Vatomarna hamialdot el Paro," and the midwives say to Paro, "Lo chadashim hamitzriot ha'ivriot." These Israelites are not like the Egyptian women. Ki chayot hena b'terem tavo alehem hamialedet. Vialadu. The word chayot seems to imply a certain life force. They are filled with life even before the midwife comes to them. They have already given birth. And I think once again, this is a, if not an ironic statement, it certainly is one that flies in the face of Paro's decree representing another triumph of God over Paro. Not only has he not, has Paro not succeeded in uh, deflating the people or beating them into submission, but in fact, the midwives describe this nation as having a very strong life force, enabling them to give birth very easily. Um, now, the next pasuk tells us, Vayetev Elohim Lamialdot, and God did good for the midwives, Vayirev Ha'am Vayatzmu Me'od, and this, of course, is the people multiply and they become very strong, taking us back to pasuk Zayin, where we're told, Vayirbu Vayatzmu, and they multiplied and became strong, and, of course, taking us also to pasuk Tet, where we see Paro's dread of Am Yisrael becoming Rav Menu, so that we really see that the chapter ends exactly in the opposite way that Paro had intended, that instead of curtailing their proliferation, in fact, because of Paro's decree, they become even more numerous and even stronger. Um, and that seems to be, by the way, God's reward for the midwives, is that the reward is that he strengthens the people, exactly what they uh, were, were accomplishing was not something for themselves, but rather for the national good. Now the people become stronger and they become even more, um, even, even greater in number. Pasukaf Aleph, and it was when the midwives feared God, and he made for them houses. And this is a very difficult pasuk in that it's not exactly clear how the two parts of the pasuk relate to each other. Most of the Mephashim regard the word Vayas, the subject of, and he made for them houses, as God. And they see this as being the midwives' reward for having been God-fearing. Um, and they translate the Pasuk something along the lines of, because they were God-fearing, God gave them a reward of houses, houses either being families. Right? The famous Rashi is that these midwives were Yocheved and Miriam, and Yocheved became the 
uh, progenitor of the house of Levi, and Miriam became the progenitor of the house of the Melucha. So it was Beit HaMelucha and Beit HaKiluna that were the rewards for being God-fearing. There is another reading, which I think is a very strong reading as well, which is that this is not, in fact, a reward for the midwives, but that the subject of the word Vayas is not God, but Paro. And that is, in fact, that because they were fearing God, Paro was very concerned about their loyalty, and therefore he basically imprisoned them. The approach is adopted by the Rashbam, by Rav Yisrach by the Malbim, that, that in fact this was a, uh, a punishment, this is a description of the punishment of the meal, that we may not love this approach because, of course, we prefer to see the conclusion of the story as the Mialdo, the midwives receiving a reward rather than a punishment, and yet I think that it put this, this reading puts the midwives on par with some very great people throughout the course of history who are willing to pay a high price for moral truth. Um, and of course, there is very little doubt that the midwives are the heroes of this first part of, part of the story. They are mentioned a key seven times. And of course, they emerge as this beacon of morality and goodness within a society which largely is controlled by this despotic and very cruel Paro. And that, of course, leads us to the end of the parak, Pasuk Kavbet, where Paro unabashedly commands his entire people to become complicit in the killing of the Israelites. And Paro commands all of his nation, saying, Any son that is born, you shall cast him into the Nile. And every girl should be kept alive. And this, of course, is the lead-in for the next section, which we will discuss next time.